Adamaeus, as Jaron said earlier, we love God's word, we love to study God's word, we want to obey God's word. This morning is one of those mornings that I am really glad that you're a church that loves God's word and that you love to study, you love to learn. There's going to be themes this morning that as we go through these verses, you're probably going to disagree with me about. That, that's totally fine. I, I understand that. My email is cody at emmausokc.org, okay? <laughs> so just anything that you disagree with this morning, you just let Cody know, and uh, he'll, he'll work it out. So we've got some really, really tough things that we're going to look at, but some really important verses. And I want you to know that these verses we're looking at this morning they all point toward Jesus as king, Jesus as savior. So with all the debate, with all the controversy, it all points to Jesus. And I wanna help us do that as we look at scripture this morning. Let me pray for us and we're gonna get, get right in there. Father, thank you for choir, thank you for music, thank you for conversations that happen. We know some of the most powerful times of worship are prayer and conversation that happens before and after we come in this room people that linger in this room to encourage one another. God, thank you for the gift of church. God, we know we bring a lot of baggage into church life. We've had hard experiences. There's all kinds of challenges, but, but church can be such a great gift. And so, God, I pray for people that are trying to make a decision about church, that are trying to get connected, get reconnected. God, this morning, remind us of the power of your word and remind us that all of this points us toward Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of us who have a February 20th birthday, there's kind of an infamous event that happened 499 years ago, just past February 20th. So February 20th, 1499, the German astronomer Johannes Stuffler predicted that a vast flood would engulf the world on that day, February 20th. Guess what? Didn't happen. So in 1910, there was a French astronomer who thought Halley's Comet would snuff out all life on Earth that year. They even sold in 1910 these little sugar pills that they marketed as anti-comet medicine. And so if you took these little pills, which some very aspiring entrepreneurs sold, they were supposed to protect you from the gas from Halley's Comet as it passed near Earth. So you gotta respect the business, but bad theology and, and bad, bad way to go about it. In 2011, or 2011, Preacher Harold Camping predicted that May 21st, 2011 would be Judgment Day. That didn't happen, so he turned around and predicted it would happen in October. That didn't happen, and I'm not, to be totally honest, I'm not sure what Harold Camping is, is doing today. People thought the world would end when the Mayan calendar ended on December 21st, 2012. Numerologist David Mead said he used the geometry of the Giza pyramids to calculate the world would end on September 23rd, 2017. Unfortunately, those same pyramids have predicted that the world would end in 1881. Don't use the pyramids for your calculations. They've been wrong twice. Just last week, I saw a well-known author and speaker who was predicting that because of the spy balloons and because of the revival at Asbury and because of all the train derailments and things like this, that the world was getting ready to end this summer. I don't know. The problem with, these, the problem with all these false prophets and all these things that are put out there is they'll get you a lot of popularity, they'll make you some money, and if you're wrong, you know, other than a random preacher on a Sunday morning, everything just kind of seems to, seems to go on for you. Here's the deal, though. The problem 
with people making predictions about the end of the world like this, what happens? People start to scoff at the idea that the world ever will end. Or people start to grow hard to the idea that Jesus will come back. And it causes disillusionment. It causes people to turn away from faith, to turn away from church. You might be here this morning, and the idea that a preacher would stand up and talk about Jesus coming back and talk about the world coming to end, all those things, that's just the very worst of religion to you. You can't imagine why anybody would believe that or think about that. What we want to deal with this morning is not the false prophecy that your crazy uncle sent you on Facebook, okay? Like, there, there's a time for that. We'll, we'll deal with that another time. What we want to deal with this morning is what does God's word say about these things? What are we supposed to draw from God's word as we think about the end of life, the end of the world, all these things that fascinate people? As we get started this morning, if you're taking notes, students, I know you guys do a great job taking notes. So many of you want to know how this is going to flow. There are five main things in Mark 13 that I want you to watch out for, okay? So if you like to take notes, it's one through five. There are five things that use the same word, and I'll point this out to you as we go through the chapter, five things, and then it's all going to drive toward two responses that we need to make to God's word. It all points us to, are we going to trust in Jesus? We'll save ourselves a lot of trouble today if we remember that the end times began with the ministry of Jesus. You say, well, we're living in the end times, preacher. Absolutely we have, and we have for 2,000 years, all right? So remember, we've been living in the end times, and it's all about our response to Jesus. Not getting a date right, not understanding the signs, how are we responding to Jesus? Okay, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says that as Jesus came out of the temple, Mark chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. That phrase, as they came out of the temple, that's not just talking about a geographical move. They were in a building and they went out of the building. Elvis has left the building type of an idea. This is a theological point in the Gospel of Mark because you know where Jesus will never go back to? He will never go back into the temple for the remainder of the story. He has left the temple. It's this idea of that place is fulfilled, its purposes are fulfilled, it's become corrupt, something new is happening. So everything from this point is going to lead from the temple toward the cross. So it's making a theological point for us right here. We're not going to trust in the temple, we're turning to something new. Verse 2, Jesus said to him, this disciple who's fascinated by the beauty of the temple, he said, do you see, main word right here, see, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That particular word for seeing something, for, for perceiving something, that word is used five times in Mark chapter 13, and it's going to guide our five points as we understand how this chapter works. Point number one, watch out for great buildings. Don't trust in them. Because what's the challenge here? The disciples, they've grown up with the temple. They are fascinated. They live in a world that is overwhelmed by the beauty and the magnificence of the temple. And not just the temple building, but this is the place of sacrifice. This is where they went to find forgiveness of sins. This is where they went to be in the presence of God. This was their religious tradition. And now here Jesus is saying, we're moving on. We're going, so don't, don't be fascinated by that. Don't be drawn to that. Look to me. Be careful of looking to great buildings. And you may not be looking to great buildings, but let's be honest, 
We all trust in other things other than Jesus at times. <laughs> we are fascinated. We are in awe of other things than Christ. And so this is saying, be careful where you look. Watch out where you look. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, and there's some really cool Old Testament Ezekiel ideas going on here that he's gone to the Mount of Olives, but as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So here you go. Here's the questions laid out. They hear that the temple is going to be destroyed, that, that's going to fall down, that all that they've been amazed by, they can never imagine the temple is going to be destroyed, but they're asking, hey, can you tell us when these things are going to happen? As we prepare for Jesus's famous response that's given here, I wanna put in front of you a couple of ideas about how to read prophecy like this, because you get prophecy in the Old Testament, you get prophecy in the New Testament, especially when you think about the book of Revelation, and these books can cause so much confusion. Remember, remember on the book of Revelation, theology point number one and point number one through 99 for the book of Revelation. It's Revelation singular, not Revelations plural. Now, don't, don't be the overly religious person that corrects somebody, you know, in a, in a mocking way, but it's Revelation. It's singular. It's pointing toward Jesus. And so as we think about these confusing books in the Bible, number one, what are we going to do? We are going to watch for patterns or this idea of telescoping. What happens in prophecy in the Bible is you'll have a prophecy that's given, and it's, it's focused on something very particular, but that particular prophecy creates a pattern that telescopes out into the future. And so there's going to be other elements of that prophecy that might have been fulfilled at a particular time, but it continues on in some way, the way a telescope starts small and then gets wider as it goes. Number two, we're going to watch for symbols. And we are going to watch for Old Testament connections. The way we understand biblical prophecy is not by looking at the internet and the newspaper, it's by looking at the Old Testament. It will guide you, it'll show you what's going on here. And, and when we see these symbols, we're trying to ask, how would the people at the time have understood these symbols? symbols? And we're gonna watch for commands. We study prophecy in scripture not so we will know when something is going to happen, but so we'll know how we need to live. Prophecy is designed to teach us to turn to the Lord now. Does it, does it have a future element? Sure it does, absolutely it does. But what is going to happen in the future should determine how we live now, it should impact how we live now. So let's look at Jesus's response, and I just want to put in front of you again, Cody at EmmausOKC.org, okay? So, this is gonna get controversial. You're not gonna like me for some of the things I'm gonna say, but, but I just wanna, we're, we're gonna do our very best here, okay? Verse five, what's the response? Jesus began to say to them, see, boom, there's our word, okay? Second time, there's our word. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Point number two, watch out for turmoil in the world, but don't be deceived or alarmed. When people talk about the end times, there's so much confusion, so much deception. It creates panic, it creates anxiety, it creates scoffing, it creates all these weird emotions in us. And Jesus is saying there's going to be trouble, there's going to be turmoil, there are going to be lies that are put out there. Don't be deceived and don't go into panic. You've missed the point if you start panicking on, on all of this. 
What does he continue to say? He says, verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. How fascinating is that? When people talk about predictions of the end of the world, things are going to happen in the future, they talk about all these natural events that are happening or wars that are breaking out. What does Jesus specifically say about those things? The end is not yet. So he's talking about the temple that's going to point us toward ideas about the end of the world, but these type of things that get people up in chaos and create uh, clickbait material on the internet, it's not about the end. That's not the purpose of these things. That's just living in a really broken, sinful, painful world. Verse 8, nation will rise against nation. That sounds familiar. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, but be on your guard. I know that doesn't, in the translation, say S-E-E, the word C, but it's the same exact word. I have no idea why the translators changed words at this point, but they're trying to bring out an idea here. So it says there in verse 9, be on your guard. Watch. Watch out for suffering. Don't be stopped. You're going to face difficulty. Watch out when they're going to hand you over to councils, and you're going to be beaten in the synagogues. And then in the middle of verse 9, it says, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Okay, just a quick reminder of what's going on here. Jesus is telling these disciples the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples are asking, when is that going to happen? What are the signs that that's going to happen? So Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, and he's telling them, between now, when I'm speaking to you, and when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, the gospel is going to continue to go forward. You're going to be used to proclaim the truth of God's word, and you're going to face persecution, and you're going to face suffering, and you have to keep going. Now that phrasing, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, that verse in scripture has been used in different ways over the years, specifically to say that Jesus could not come back right now because the gospel has not been proclaimed to every language or people group on the planet. And I understand the point that's being made there. I would just tell you I don't think that's what this verse means in particular right here. That when it says here, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, that is language that's used in the New Testament for something that's actively happening in the New Testament times. What that verse means there is between the time of Christ and the time of the destruction of the temple that the gospel is going to move outside the Jewish world and it's going to go to all nations. It's going to go to the Gentiles. That just because the temple is destroyed, the gospel of God is not going to be destroyed. That's what a verse like that is meant to do. It's supposed to propel us forward to continue to preach the gospel. Now, if you say, Owen, you're completely wrong about that verse, you know your response. I've already told you what to do with that, you know, so where, where, to, where to file that complaint, where to send that. But I, I just want you to hear, I really believe that this particular verse is meant to inspire the proclamation of the gospel, but it doesn't mean that Jesus is prevented from coming back because something hasn't happened in 2023. That, that's where I, that's where I land on that very confusing verse. Verse 11, verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, 
For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You're going to face suffering. Keep going. Verse 14. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing there. Okay, now, we have a transition that happens here. We have a transition that happens here, and it gets really spicy at this point, all right, when you're talking about biblical prophecy and things that are going on. Jesus is introducing a new idea, and then in verse 23, he's going to come around, he's going to use that particular word that we've been talking about, the, the watch, be on guard, see what's happening here. So we're moving to a new idea. We are going to watch out for the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation, and Jesus is saying, don't stick around. <laughs> like, be careful about getting caught up in what's going to happen at this time. Now, the abomination of desolation sounds like the abominable snowman or something. It's what I think of every time when I hear the abomination of desolation. I think of the abominable snowman. This, this idea, what's going on here? It reaches back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Remember, how do we read these prophecies? We want to connect back to the Old Testament. So we're reaching back to an Old Testament idea that was fulfilled first in 168, 167 BC or so with the Antiochus Epiphanes as he comes in and desecrates the temple and does some horrible things in the temple. Jesus is picking up that same idea to say something terrible is going to happen in the temple just before it's destroyed. Now, we also have to acknowledge that this same language is often pushed forward toward the end times, that there's a figure who will come, like the Antichrist, who will come and, and be established. What do we know about prophecy? What do we know about prophecy? It has a very particular point, and then it has a pattern that spreads out into the future. So what is Jesus talking about in this verse? He's talking about something that's going to happen in the temple before A.D. 70, but that can become a pattern for other things we're going to see in the future. So we're trying, to, we're trying to make the balance here, and I'm trying to limit how many people I make mad about this idea. So, but, but I really believe it points to the temple with future ramifications beyond that. Okay, let's find out about this abominable snowman or abomination of desolation. What do we find out? When this figure is set up, middle of verse 14, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Why would Jesus, as the war is breaking out around A.D. 66, 67, the temple is under attack, why would Jesus tell the people, don't go to Jerusalem? They would go to Jerusalem for two reasons. They would either go to Jerusalem to get in the middle of the fight that's happening to defend the temple, or they would run to the temple for what? Protection. And Jesus is saying, that place we're not fighting for anymore, and we're not running to protection, or running to it for protection anymore. Something different is happening. There's a new order that's breaking in. We're not going to run back there when you see this war breaking out. Verse 17. Alas, for women who are pregnant... And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation 
Has this not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be? Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. I'm not going to be around there. Verse 22, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Then watch what happens in verse 24. 24 is an interesting transition. I'm going to keep trying to make this push for how there's a very particular first century element that points into the future. But verse 24, in those days, after that tribulation, after that abomination of desolation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And you say, if you've, if you've read your Bible, if you're some, some, somewhat familiar with the Bible, if you're kind of tracking with the verses this morning, you say, surely, Owen, you're talking about the distant future, the end of the world. That, that can't have anything to do with A.D. 70, right? Um, go with me on this. I, I think it does. I think, again, I think, again, this is a prophecy. This is a piece of the Scripture that points to something that was going to happen around the destruction of the temple that, again, becomes a pattern for what will come in the future at the end of all times. Go back to the beginning of verse 26, just for a second, okay? Let me try to make my case, and either way, where do these verses point? They point us to Jesus. They point us to Jesus, okay? So look at, the, look at verse 26, just for a second. What are the people going to see when verses 24 through 27 are happening? They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, the folks that would have heard these words originally, they knew their Bible hundreds of times better than, than you and I will ever know our Bible. They're just immersed in the Old Testament. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. They would have called it the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew their Scriptures. This language in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, what does it reflect? It reflects Daniel 7. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom. That language in Daniel 7 doesn't specifically talk about a divine figure coming to earth. That language in Daniel 7 talks about the king of kings being enthroned in the heavens, reigning over all things. And so it feels like Jesus in Mark chapter 13 is telling the people, when the temple is destroyed, don't look there. Look up, because I am reigning over all things. I am in control of everything that's happening. I am worthy of all worship and devotion. And will he come at the end of time to establish his kingdom forever? Absolutely he will. What is happening there with the destruction of the temple and Jesus reigning over all things points us to the future when he will return to make all things right. That's what's happening in these scriptures, I think. I'm almost certain that's what's happening in these scriptures. Verse 28, let's keep running. Verse 28, we get a parable where Jesus says, if you missed all of that and you got super confused, just follow this parable and, and it'll help you out. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
as soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, as soon as you see these things happening, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation, probably first century, pointing toward the future, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, and, and I think the transition toward the future happens in 32, I think we have a transition happening here, 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, verse 33, underline it, highlight it, circle it, put it out. It's the core of this chapter. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. The fifth use of that word for seeing something or being on guard, watch out for the end of the world, don't fall asleep. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when he will come. So again, you hear a prediction that someone makes about the time when the world is going to end. Again, I hate to pick on crazy uncles, but your crazy uncle sends you a Facebook article or you hear something like that come out. Does anybody know when the Son of Man is going to return exactly? No. So when you hear a prophecy like that, you know we're already off on the wrong foot. We're already going the wrong direction. We don't know, but what are we supposed to do? Keep watch. Stay awake. Be on guard. Pay attention. What we will not do is we will not sleepwalk through the Christian life. Let me say that again, because we're going to come around to that terminology a few more times before we wrap up. We will not sleepwalk through life. One day Jesus will come back. One day this life will end. One day this world as we know it will no longer be, and we will be prepared. We will be watching. We will be awake. We will be ready when that time comes. Verse 34 Jesus gives us another parable. He says, it's like a man who went on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his teenagers in charge. Well, not entirely, but yeah. He puts his servants in charge. He puts somebody in charge. It's like, hey, I'm gonna be away for a while. You guys just watch over things. What could possibly go wrong? Um, they're in charge, each with his own job, with his own work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Pay attention. Don't let anybody break into my house while I'm gone. This is the pressure you feel when a neighbor says, hey, I'm going to be out of town for a few days. Could you watch the house? You're like, oh, I don't need that pressure in my life. Like, I don't want something to happen to your house while you're gone, but I feel the pressure to make sure everything's okay. So, verse 35, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, that language, what's that pushing us ahead toward? It's pushing us ahead toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Because what does Jesus tell the disciples to do that night? Just stay awake and pray. Just stay awake to see what's going on. And what do they do? Yeah, you feel the pressure. They, they, they fall asleep. Two responses I would ask you to make to God's word this morning. Number one, what does it mean to stay awake? What does it mean to pay attention? What does it mean to not sleepwalk through life? We must have daily faithfulness to how we live. We must have daily faithfulness. What does that look like? Pursue holiness. Pray. 
serve. Just do your job. Keep going in the Christian life. You're like, Owen, where did you get those three points? Pursue holiness, pray, serve. What I did is I looked for this word that we've been talking about in other places in the New Testament and other places where that word showed up. These are the ideas that are around that word. What does it mean to be faithful to the Lord every day? Pursue holiness. Oftentimes when that language about staying awake, watching, paying attention, the opposite of that is getting drunk. Why? Because something else is controlling you. Anytime something else takes control of our lives, we're not in a position to live faithfully before the Lord. And so he says, pay attention. Live in a way that your mind is clear. Live in a way that your life in front of you, there's a clear path in front of you. Be a person of prayer. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but can we be honest? We need prayer. Everybody in this room, if you said, hey, can we pray for you? Hands probably all going up because we need prayer. We need people to watch over us in prayer. What do you do in the Christian life? Most of the time, the Christian life is how do I follow Jesus on a Tuesday morning that I don't feel very religious, that I don't feel very Christian. Most of the Christian life is just made up of everyday, ordinary interactions. I go to work, I care for my family, I love my friends, I go out and have a good time, and I just wanna follow Jesus in the middle of that. Just keep going. Number two, we have daily faithfulness with eternal focus. All that Jesus has said in this passage, one day the temple is going to be destroyed. One day this world is going to come to the end. Watch, pay attention. Every day, be faithful to the Lord and don't lose sight of eternity, that we are not living ultimately for this world. I want you to know, Adamaeus, we wanna be so careful that when it comes to the end of a worship service that we never emotionally manipulate you, we don't force you into a decision, and, and I'm, a, I'm a terrible hell and brimstone preacher, but I'm gonna be so straightforward with you. And we're gonna be straightforward with you because we love you, not because we're trying to be religiously manipulative. One day your life will end. One day your life will end. It may be today, or it may be years from now. One day this world will come to an end. One day Jesus will come back to make all things right. Scripture says we live once, we die once, and then we face judgment. And the question is, where is your trust? Where is your hope? What, what is your life focused on? We don't do a good job in our world talking about eternity, but we need to think about it. Don't sleepwalk through life. Don't sleepwalk into eternity having no idea where your hope for life is found. Every one of us deals with all kinds of brokenness and sin and pain in our lives. Every one of us is going to face death, face the end of this life. The question is, where's our hope? Where's our hope found? If you're here this morning and you don't know your hope for eternity, you don't know what would happen in your life after death, can I call you today to trust in Jesus for salvation? to know that he is king of kings, he is lord of lords, he is able to take care of your sin and your death, and you have hope forever in him. And you may be here this morning, and you say, Owen, I absolutely believe that. I have that hope. But let me ask you another question this morning, and, and hold on to this question through the, through the week, if you would, for me. Are you sleepwalking through the Christian life? 
Like, are, you, are, you, are your eyes open? Do you see what's happening? Are you actively involved in what God has called you to do? Or if someone described your Christian life, are you pretty much just sleepwalking? Like you're just going through the motions, barely aware of what's happening, not aware of what's happening on, around you. Don't sleepwalk through life and don't sleepwalk through the Christian life. Stay awake, stay focused, because where is everything pointing? It's pointing toward Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to sing this powerful song about Jesus as King, God, we feel the pain that these disciples felt, that they were looking around at beautiful buildings, they were looking around at all the things in this world, and Jesus tells them they're looking in the wrong place. And God, we know in our lives, if we're not careful, we end up looking in the wrong places for life, um, or we just sleepwalk through life. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that when they think about eternity, there's a sense of anxiety, there's a sense of uncertainty. Maybe they've gotten to a point, they just, they don't care what happens after this life. They feel really hard to the idea that this life would be, be over. God, this morning, would you call people to salvation? Would you call people to trust in Jesus as King and Savior and Lord? And God, for those of us who have not been faithful to you the way we need to be, we've not been serving, we've not been loving our friends and family, we've not been praying, God, we've lost sight of the Christian life. Maybe, maybe we've gotten disconnected from church and you're calling us back to be connected to the church. God, whatever that looks like, don't let us sleepwalk. Let us wake up to what is most important. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.